felt like Moses coming off Mount Sinai there for a second. Okay, we're going to continue in the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, and I always try to do a brief recap. Today it's going to be really brief, uh, but we are still in the address of next series of 1 and 2 Corinthians, and 1 and 2 Corinthians are letters that Paul wrote to a church in a town called Corinth. Uh, this church Paul actually established himself four to five years before he wrote his, these two letters, uh, and when he established it, he actually took the time uh, to spend 14 or 15 months training them and getting them ready to be an independent church before he left their own. But despite all he'd done for them and all the training, uh, they kind of lost their way and they became really worldly, which means they became immature, they became immoral, uh, they became self-righteous and religious. So Paul wrote these letters kind of as a means of disciplining their leaders and also kind of getting them back on the right path. Now, for the past few weeks, Paul has been talking about sexual immorality. For the past, past few chapters, actually. Um, and this week, Paul's kind of jumping to the opposite side of that spectrum. This is that, that sermon that everybody goes, ooh, I bet that's awkward to preach. But since I have no filter, it's not that bad. But um, this week, he's going to be talking about the importance of sexual intimacy in marriage, which is the total opposite of sexual immorality. So, there's a PG-13 on this one. Okay. Let's jump right in. 1 Corinthians 7, starting in verse 1. It says, Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. My wife always used to go, Stop there. I'm like, Wait, there's more. Uh, verse 2. But because of immoralities, and that word immoralities, again, in the Greek, is porneia, which is where we get our word pornography from. It literally means sexual immoralities. I don't know why they don't translate that the rest of the way out. Uh, but because of sexual immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. Now, chapter 7, verse 1 and 2 makes a few things evident. It makes it, you know, mo- more than anything, it makes it evident that Paul is getting a lot of questions. A lot of questions that he needed to answer, he felt were pertinent to answer, uh, and especially some questions about marital intimacy. And when Paul, what Paul meant by now concerning the, the things about which he wrote, he was talking about evidently they had corresponded through letters some of those questions. And he was saying, concerning the things you wrote, basically I'm going to answer all those questions and he'll do so in verses, uh, chapters 8 and 9, and uh, chapters 12 and 14. That's what he was talking about. Now, when it said, when Paul said, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, he was still addressing sexual immorality from the previous chapters. He was kind of finishing up what was being written in those previous chapters. Now, a lot of theologians and a lot of Bible teachers have misinterpreted this for years. And I, I don't know, sometimes uncomfortable topics, people just skate over them or don't spend much time with them, but I don't think this is a, you know, a topic that you can skip over. Paul wasn't referring when he said it's better for a man not to touch a woman. He wasn't referring to a married man not touching his wife. So, sorry about that, wife. Uh, he was actually saying that leaders, uh, and he wasn't saying that, that leaders shouldn't be married or that leaders had to live a life of celibacy. And there's some denominations that believe that. He wasn't saying that. Uh, and he was in no way saying that those who are celibate somehow are more you know, spiritual or efficient leaders. He wasn't saying that. See, most agree that Paul himself was married at one time. And at one point, his wife passed away and he was widowed. That's what most uh, you know, theologians over time have, have, have agreed upon. And the reason they agreed on that was that Paul was a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin Council, which was the leading body, governing body of the, of the Jews. One of the qualifications for being on the Sanhedrin Council was to be married. So he had to have been married to have been accepted on that council. Uh, and we know Paul was never divorced, and that would certainly have been in here. Uh, so the, the, the most obvious answer is that he was with it. Uh, so it's, that's probably why, that's how we come to that conclusion. Now, I'm also not saying that there's, some, that there's not a special blessing for those who choose a life of celibacy to dedicate themselves to God. I'm, I'm sure there is. 
I'm just not, I'm just saying that there's no biblical evidence that that was ever a requirement in the Old or New Testament. As a matter of fact, the Old Testament free all of them away. Okay? Now, because of this topic of celibacy, I want to jump to uh, Matthew 19, if you follow along, you jump there with me. Uh, and I want to take a look at this, because Jesus talks a little about, a bit about celibacy while he's talking about divorce, so it talks about two things at the same time. So Matthew 19.3, it says, Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read? Which, by the way, this is kind of an insult to tell someone who is a Pharisee or a Sadducee, Have you not read? Because they were supposed to be the scholars. But he said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become what? One flesh, or one in body. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Sound familiar? Verse 7. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? Underscore command if you're following along. They, uh, he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses what? permitted you to divorce your wives. This is operative. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for pornea, sexual immorality, and marries another uh, woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, is it better not to marry? But he said to them, not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who are born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who are made eunuchs by men, and there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. Now, the Pharisees, it's kind of funny, the Pharisees were testing Jesus, hoping to trip him up in matters concerning the law. How ironic, seeing how, you know, he's God. Right? They were trying to trip him up in matters of the law of God. And they asked him about divorce. And the reason they did was probably because they knew his stance on it. He was against divorce, and they knew that. And they knew there was an allotment for it under Moses, and they thought they would you know, expose that. But soon they were going to find out that it's just not wise to challenge or test the Son of God. So they asked him if a man could divorce his wife for any reason at all. And Jesus answered them by saying, divorce is only justified in matters of infidelity. That's the only time that it would be justified, right? Now, when he answered that, they remembered that Moses said they could just write a script of the divorce. So they thought he was contradicting Moses. So now they thought that they had him right where they wanted him. They thought they finally had him. But in actuality, they were just revealing their ignorance of the way God planned things out. Because in Matthew 19, 7, it says, They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? Now, they said that he commanded men to divorce their wives. That's not what Moses said. And Jesus' response was, talked about their hearts, the condition of their hearts, and then it talked about a mistake that Moses made. So this is really, I mean, this is, this is brave. Matthew 19, 8 9, again, he said to them, because of your what? Hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So Jesus said, Moses didn't command you to divorce your wives. He permitted you to divorce your wife. And he said, but from the beginning it's not been this way. What are you saying is it was never supposed to be that way. I didn't tell Moses to say that. He said that on his own. So he's kind of throwing Moses under the bus here. He said, I never told him to say that. He said that on his own. 
from the beginning, it has not been this way. What way? That you can divorce your wife for any cause at all. And the Jews of Moses' time, let me explain why Moses did this. It's not that he was just being mean or ignorant. I mean, there's, there's, the Jews of his day were doing some things that Moses knew he had to correct with relationship to their wives. Okay? Number one, some men were killing their wives so that they could marry a new one. And felt justified in doing so because they knew that God hated divorce. They're like, you know, I don't want to make God mad, so I'll just kill her. That was their solution. Right? And the other thing they were doing was other men were saying, well, I won't divorce her, but I'll just marry a new model every time I think this one's getting old. And so they were they were developing these harems and creating these harems of wives, which was never supposed to be. Right? So they had these harems. And those who did that were basically neglecting and devaluing their first wife. Just acting like she meant nothing. So his motives were good, but when Moses tried to solve the problem, he really slipped up here. And he had good motives, just a bad, you know, bad solution when he slipped up. But basically what Moses was saying, and this is in the Chris Moses version, the CMB, he said he was basically saying, Don't kill your wives or make them a part of your harem, you idiots. I just get just give them a certificate of divorce and send them away so they can have a chance. That's basically what he was saying. Now God never told him to do that. But he saw this issue. I don't know if you've ever seen a problem and you make a hasty decision because you know it's got to be fixed now. Story of my life. That's, that's what he was doing here. He was making a hasty decision. God did not tell him to say that. He said that on his own. And what he was trying to do was stand up uh, for their wives by giving those who are wicked enough to do those two things we discussed an out other than those two things. At least divorce them. Don't ignore them and devalue them and make them part of your harem. Or at least give them a certificate of divorce. Don't kill them. That's basically what he was saying, and that's why Jesus said that it was because of the hardness of their hearts. But from the beginning, God only intended marriage to be between one man and one woman. That's the way it has always, always, always been. God never supported multiple wives, ever. And people always ask me about that because you'll see several of the patriarchs in the Old Testament who had many wives. Just because they did it didn't make it right. They were following the culture of that time. They were not following uh, any spiritual guidance from the Word of God. God never intended for that to happen. He never supported it. And even the patriarchs, David, Abraham, all those that you saw that did that, God was not pleased with it. And if you take a look at the life of King David and Abraham and some of the other patriarchs, all the problems that they had in their lives, in their kingdoms, spawned from the wives that come that they weren't supposed to have. Right? When they took wives they weren't supposed to have, those wives... And the children of those wives were the, all the problems they had in Israel. The reason we have the squabbles in the Middle East is because Abraham should not have taken his, his uh, wife's handmaid and had a child. God did not bless it, and it ended up causing a war that's going on to this day. If you look, any extra wives outside the ones that they were supposed to have were nothing but trouble, and the kids they brought from that marriage were nothing but trouble because God wasn't going to bless something he did not ordain, even if his men were doing it. So it actually, all those who had those multiple wives, who researched that through the Bible, they all were kind of cursed because of it. Okay, it was, it, They brought major, major issues into their life and into their kingdom. And now God also never supported men devaluing or neglecting or degrading their wives. A lot of people think that the Bible is a sexist document. I've heard people say that. It's usually people who have never read it or have read just enough to be dangerous. Right? It's never those who actually have studied it. The Bible is, has never devalued women. As a matter of fact, the Bible speaks very highly of women. And when a king did well, the mom got the credit. 
kind of like when you raise your son to play football your whole life and they finally make their touchdown in college and they look at the, at the camera and you've played catch with them your whole life, taught them how to tackle, played in the backyard, and what do they say? Hi, Mom. Kind of the same thing in the Bible, same thing that happened right there. So he never supported any kind of mistreatment of women or, or, or especially their wives. Now in Ephesians, Paul, to kind of expound on that, even said that men should love their wives like Jesus loved the church. Look at this, Ephesians 5.25. He said, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also, what? Loved the church and gave himself up for her. He's saying, men, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And remember something. Jesus died for the church. And you're supposed to love your wife enough to do the same. Jesus put his own needs on the back burner, his own welfare, his own safety, his own life, on the back burner because he loved the church so much he was willing to die for it and sacrifice for it. And he's saying, husband, that's how you should treat your wife. That's what Paul told him in Ephesus. Now, Jesus also pointed out that this same level of commitment existed in Matthew 19, 5 and 6. He said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be what? Joined to his wife, okay? And the two shall become one flesh, meaning they shall be considered one in body and person. So they are no longer two but one flesh, but therefore God is joined together. Let no man separate, okay? That's pretty plain. But basically what he was saying is the closeness of the husband and wife relationship should make them so close that they function as one entity. They should work together and develop the same direction, the same vision. They should be so close as husband and wife. The love should be so deep that when people can't see one without thinking of the other. Have you ever known a couple that is just a great example of love to each other? When, when you think of one, you think of the other one, you think of, you know, and vice versa. That's what God's talking about, being one flesh. So the disciples, it's kind of funny. Remember, they had been raised their whole lives believing some of the lies that were taught by the rabbis and by the priests. Right? So they're like, what? You mean you can't get rid of your wife for any reason at all? Nothing? I mean, she has to cheat on me or I'm stuck with her? I mean, that's what they were thinking. So they asked this question, which I think is hilarious. They basically said, you know, so is it better to just not get married and stay celibate than to be stuck in a marriage? I mean, it was a really harsh question. It's pretty lame, actually, but that's what they were saying. Matthew 19, 11, 12 uh, said, but he said to them, not all men can accept this statement, but only to those whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were uh, born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs, uh, and there are eunuchs uh, who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. Now Jesus was saying that not every man could live a celibate life. Right, which is why we go back to Paul. That's why Paul said that. Not every man could live a celibate life, only those who are called eunuchs. How many people have ever heard of that? Eunuch. Okay, you're about to find out. Okay, the word eunuch uh, in the Greek is eunokos or eunukos. Uh, and the definition is pretty hard, so brace yourself, all right? The definition is a castrated person or one who voluntarily abstains from marriage. So, so I imagine people weren't lining up for that. Okay, that's why I say not everybody could do that. Now, there were three ways that someone could become a eunuch in those days, all right? Number one is some people were born uh, without the ability or desire for sexual intimacy. That was one eunuch, born a eunuch. There are people who were born just had no interest. Uh, number two, 
there are units who are made that way by men. And this is talking about how what kings would do. I mean, one example anyway of it is back then kings would would make their chamberlain or their chamber chamberlains uh, units. They would make them units. Okay, and what a chamberlain was was someone who took care of the king's harem, would oversee the king's harem. So the king's thinking was, I want it to be a man to protect him, but I'm putting a man in charge of the most beautiful women in the kingdom. So he made him a unit. That's all I got to say about that. And he did that so they wouldn't fool around with his harem. That's why he did that. Those are the ones who man made that way. And it says uh, the, not the third reason someone could be a unit, the third way they become a unit, is uh, they made themselves unit, uh, units for the sake of the kingdom of God. Now, I would, you know, to me, I would like to think that this means they just decided not to be intimate. But from definition, it kind of applies that they were really dedicated. You know what I'm saying? And that's all I got to say about that. But they were making themselves units. Anyway, so back in our main text, the reason, you know, Jesus said men and women should marry, right, and the reason Paul was saying that men and women should marry was so that they wouldn't be tempted by the enemy to commit sexual immorality. That's what he was saying. Because the sexual desire in, in humanity is one of the most powerful desires we possess. It's one of the most powerful desires we possess, and I don't think there's anybody that would argue that. So unless, he was saying, so unless you're a eunuch or unless you're married, it's better just not to touch a woman. So he was talking to all those people that were being sexually immoral. He was saying, listen, if you're not married and you're not a eunuch, don't let yourself get close enough to be tempted. It's best you just not even touch it. Stay away from it. Because one thing leads to another is basically what he was saying. Because, I mean, sexual desire in and of itself is not a sin. It's natural as long as it's used according to the will of God. It's not a sin. Now, let's move on. Verses 3 and 4. It said, The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife. <laughs> and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, the word duty is from the Greek word ophele, and it means responsibility or obligation. So in context, Paul is calling maritable, uh, marital intimacy a couple's duty. Isn't that romantic? You guys are married. Do your duty. I mean, come on. So romantic. Back then, I don't think flower shops would have made a run at it. Anyway, so, but understand something. When he called it their duty, he was probably trying to find a nice way to say it because he wasn't trying to de-romanticize marital intimacy. He was trying to emphasize a point. That's what he was trying to do. And the point he was trying to emphasize was it's really important for a married couple to have regular uh, intimacy. And he didn't say that because he was a perv. And he didn't say that because he was a sexist. That's not why he said that, Right? but because he understood how important it is. Now, anyone who's been married can let you know that intimacy is a big part of it, and if it's missing, it, it causes a lot of problems, right? Because the closeness that intimacy brings to a marriage was designed to strengthen them and make them closer to each other than they are anybody else. Now, when you break down the psychology behind marital intimacy, it all makes sense, and I'm going to do that for you. Now, understand, let me, let me put this out here. I did not write these texts, okay, and I did not write these, you know, these results. I didn't, this wasn't me. I'm not a psychologist. That's, I read it from psychologists and, and psychologists who scientifically tested it. 
Just a disclaimer, okay? Telling that before I get into it. But God created men and women to desire intimacy. But what drives that intimacy in a man and a woman is different. Does that shock anybody? It's totally different. Now, we'll start with women. What drives a woman's desire for intimacy is the need for romance and emotional bonding. Does that mean that the physical aspect doesn't play in? Well, obviously not. It's just not the driving factor. It's not the, you know, the number one drive behind their intimacy. Okay? Um, now, understand, with men, not so much. Okay? What drives a man's desire for intimacy is more physical. Now, that doesn't, mean, that doesn't mean it's not emotional or romantic for them. It's just emotion and romance is not the primary drive behind the desire. That's all i got to say about that. Anyway, that's not the, the primary cause behind it, right? Now, a lot of people have asked me, why did God design them to have different factors that drive their sexual desire? You know, why is one physical, and emo- or one physical and one emotional and romantic? The Bible actually doesn't deal with that. You don't see any answer uh, in Scripture that tells you the answer to that question. I don't know why he made them different. But I will speculate for argument's sake. Okay? I'm going to speculate why he made them different. What would it look like if both men and women were driven to intimacy by emotion and romance? I can think of three things. First of all, chick flicks would be the biggest sellers in the box office. Number one. Number two, Kleenex would be a better investment than Apple and Tesla combined. And number three, no one would have much intimacy because two people can't play hard to get. That's all I'm saying. Right? Now, what would it look like if both men and women were driven... Uh, their desire for intimacy was driven by the physical. What would it look like? I can only think of one way it would look. The economy would collapse because no one would ever go to work. That's how I see it. Okay? But, and and I know, but seriously, I mean, even secular studies agree on the importance of intimacy in a marriage. Okay? And I'm going to give you some of this. Uh, For the most part, both science and psychology both agree with God's word on marital intimacy, which is very strange. It's weird for the for science and, and psychology to agree uh, with the Bible on pretty much anything. But a lot of research has been done on the effects of regular intimacy in a marriage. Now, there were people who did these studies, but they were blind studies, which means uh, you know one person didn't know what the other person you know in the study was doing, and it, it was totally double-blind study. So I'm just gonna you know I'll share that with you here in a minute. But I read some of these articles on the psychological and emotional benefits of marital intimacy, and I even looked up that research, and I think this research will actually shock you. It shocked me. I'm going to be honest with you. It, it kind of shocked me. Research shows that marriages that have regular intimacy are healthier and last longer. That really doesn't shock me. Uh, it also revealed that there are physical and psychological benefits to marital intimacy. Okay, so studies revealed that couples who are highly or who are regularly intimate exhibited the following signs. Now, first we'll take a look at the psychological benefits that were found from this study uh, of regular intimacy in marriage. It says both men and women who are regularly intimate uh, in a marriage exhibited better self-esteem and or self-worth. Okay, that makes sense. Okay. Uh, It says both men and women exhibited a greater level of commitment to each other. I think that makes sense, right? Uh, It said both men and women consistently displayed regular elevated moods. 
which means people who are regular instrument are usually in a good mood. Didn't write it, just telling you what it said, but I do agree with it, okay? Um, both men and women uh, who are regularly intimate generally develop a closer friendship bond than those who are not. I think that makes sense. Okay, now let's look at a few of the physical benefits of regular uh, marital intimacy, and this one's where I got some of my thoughts. Okay, both men and women generally had better skin and a better overall appearance. <laughs> so many jokes, so little time. Okay, let that go. Okay, it says both men and women generally slept better and had improved immune systems. Had improved immune systems. So you can tell your spouse that intimacy is nothing more than God's natural vaccination against illness. I didn't write it. Just saying. All right. It says both men and women have less stress who are regularly intimate because sex releases endorphins, which are known as the happy hormones. Okay? Endorphins... This is probably a terrible thing to say, but endorphins are released when people do cocaine, when they're, you know, there's, it's the drug that makes them happy is what they talk about. Cocaine made you have this euphoria. They say people who are regularly intimate have a greater release of the happy hormone. So, anyway. And lastly, both men and women who are regularly intimate have less body pain. So many jokes, so little time. I'm going to let that go. But that is not me. That is literally found in, in, in studies that I, that I was uh, reading on. Okay? Now, as amusing as those facts are, it establishes a very important thing about God's design for marriage and God's design in general. It establishes, once again, that even science can't deny the perfection of God's design, even when it's dealing with something emotional like this. It just can't, it, the science actually has to uphold His design in that area. Now, when people follow God's plan, and when they, when they save their intimacy for marriage, God blesses it. And uh, the foundation of his design is a marriage between one man and one woman. And the only place where intimacy can be blessed is within those boundaries. Now, next Paul, it's kind of weird, next Paul warns his readers of the danger of denying marital intimacy. Okay? Now, again, I didn't write this. 1 Corinthians 7, 5 through 7. Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. And come together again, here's the operative word, so that Satan will not tempt you because of what? Your lack of self-control. Okay? Now, this is huge. This is huge. He's saying you shouldn't deny each other except in, for a time to pray. If you're praying through something, you need time to dedicate yourself to prayer. That's really the only reason he's saying. Verse 6, But I, but I say this by way of concession, not command, Yet I wish that all men were even as myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. What he was saying was, I wish all men could be, could function fully dedicated to God outside of the need of a woman. And the only reason he was saying that was because his wife had passed on and he had, you know, kind of moved on and, and he had developed his relationship with God and he was focusing on that. So... One of the marital issues that I counsel probably the most, and I do a lot of, of, of pre- and post-marital counseling, ironically, I, I counsel a lot of people from a lot of different churches. Uh, uh, and this is without, I mean, without doubt, one that I have to counsel more than anything else is issues of, of intimacy in a marriage. It always ends up being involved, okay? Almost always, I should say. Um, and the enemy also knows the difference between a man's drive and a woman's drive. The enemy knows that. 
And believe me, he loves to exploit those differences every chance he can because, see, God loves marriage. That means the enemy hates it, right? And so he's always trying to find ways to split that marriage up, right? And that's why Paul told them to stop depriving one another except for prayer so that Satan would not tempt them because of their lack of self-control. Again, that's the operative word in verse 5. Now, as I said earlier, the natural desire for sexual intimacy is a powerful thing. And this is where the enemy really thrives in his attack on, on biblical marriage. This is where he really thrives. Okay, because if, if you want to avoid his attacks on your marriage, always remember the following. Okay, so here's some things I really want you to remember. Okay, marital intimacy was not designed to be used as a punishment or a reward. It was not designed to be used as a punishment or a reward. And not only is it sin to do so, it's also the fuse that the devil will light to blow up your marriage if you use it that way. Okay? Now I'll give you some examples and see if you or someone you know have experienced this. I've counseled men whose wives have been mad at them, and anybody ever heard these phrases, put them on the couch? You ever hear that? Cut them off is a big one, right? Now whether they know it or not, doing that by, you know, it's, it's using sex as a punishment is, is literally defying God no matter who does it. Because the wife may cut off the intimacy, but she's not going to cut off his desire. Okay? That doesn't go away because she's mad at it. And inevitably, the enemy will use that one morally challenged woman to throw temptation into the husband's life who's been cut off. Okay? And the enemy's going to always see to it that that woman finds that man. It never fails. And you all have probably worked with that woman who's always making inappropriate gestures and comments to married men, and you sit there thinking to yourself, I like this crap. You, know, you guys probably think that, right? Inevitably, I think the enemy sends those people right to the people he knows he can damage the most with it. They always find that person. And before long, she's trying everything she can do to appeal to his natural desire, right? And before long, sadly, a lot of times it works and they give in. And then they're in my office, and the wife is crying and calling him names. Okay? That's the way it works, right? Now, by giving in, make no mistake, he committed a serious sin against God and his wife. No matter what the situation is, it's still a serious sin against God and his wife, and, and he will answer for it, right? Not only will he answer for it, he's probably also irreparably damaged his family. So I'm not by no means giving that person a pass, Right? But I always remind the wife that's in that situation that you're also guilty. You're guilty of aiding and abetting the enemy because you went against God to try to punish and control your husband and gave the enemy an opening to attack your husband. And here's what happens. What he did was wrong, but you played a role in it. Okay? I actually counseled a couple one time. This is in my outline, but I'm going to share it. I counseled a couple one time where they had this issue, and I kept telling them, you guys, I'm telling you, there's ways to work this out. Don't mess with that. Don't try to do that. I warned him and warned him and warned him and warned him. And eventually, it happened. And they were back in my office and I had this situation. So it was just terrible. Now, likewise, you know, I've counseled a couple. And a lot of guys say, oh, I don't imagine a guy would ever deny it. What? Yeah, it, it happens, fellas. Let me tell you how. Okay? I've counseled the couple where the man has become preoccupied. Right? They find themselves being busied with other things and the love that they had for their wife when they were dating and how they wooed her and talked about her and wanted to be around her and sat on the phone and go, you hang up first. No, you hang up first. Right? 
They forget all that. Right? They forget everything about that. Right? And usually there's one of three reasons that I've found that a man will deny intimacy that his wife desires. Right? Number one, he's trying to relive his glory days with local sports. Okay? Uh, I tried that at one time, and it cost me about $250,000 in surgery. That's all i got to say about that. But anyway, I've seen this before. Um, I knew a guy, no joke, someone I knew very closely, who was on a bowling team, men's league softball team, co-ed softball team, poker, had poker night, right, and had hunting buddies. Now, if you know the time that all those things take, there's not a lot of time for a wife in there, is there? And it, was, it blew me away. This young lady came to me uh, in a different scenario. Her husband had gotten involved in a hobby that he loved, and he was actually starting to make money at it. And what he was doing was he would work 12 hours a day. He'd come home, and then he'd go out in his garage and do customization to vehicles. And he was so into that. But there were times months would go by. Well, she came to me, and she said, Pastor, is it normal for a husband and wife to only have kissed once in a month? And I go, whoa, back up. So you're telling me, and she was a, a 26-year-old woman, an attractive young lady, and he was an attractive 26-year-old man. You wouldn't think that would be a problem. And I said, no, that, that's cool. Are you telling me you, that's all the intimacy you've had in a month is a peck on the cheek? Okay, I said, no, that's not normal. She said, well, I just wondered because I noticed I started to almost envy my friend's husbands and how the attention they paid to their wives and how they made them feel important. I went, um, you know, I saw it starting to happen. I saw it starting to happen right in front of me. Okay, now another way uh, is they start spending too much time with his buddies than his wife, which I think is weird, but it happens. Uh, and another way to deny him is they work so much because they're trying to provide a better life for their family, but in the meantime, denies their family. So is it really about providing a better life for them or building your masculine ego? It's got to be, you know, one of those, right? But inevitably, the woman will meet the guy who has no more. And the enemy will make sure that he finds her, right? And see if this sounds familiar. You've all probably worked with this guy, right? And, and this guy angers most men. When you hear it, you'll know what I'm talking about, right? He's the one that appeals to her emotional and romantic desires that she's being denied. He tells her things like, well, if I had a wife as beautiful as you, I don't know what's wrong with your husband, I'd show you off. I would take you out all the time. It's a shame that he doesn't see what a beautiful and wonderful woman you have. You know, he plays that game. And he, looks, he listens to her and talks to her, and he notices when her hair has been changed. Well, your hair looks great. Well, my husband doesn't even notice that. Does this sound familiar to anybody? Okay, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. He says, you know, and so before long she's telling all her friends, well, I know it might be wrong, but he's such a good listener. Right? And says things like, you know, he really respects me, he cares about me, and, and he pays attention to the little things, and he it compliments me when I look good. He notices when I get new outfits. You guys may think this is a joke. I have counseled this. The enemy has sent that man. Make no mistake, he has sent that man, and before long, sadly, they often give in. And inevitably, they end up in my office, and the man is calling the woman every name in the book, right? Uh, but... Honest to goodness truth, I tell him, listen, what she did is wrong. And she irreparably probably damaged your family. And it's going to take a lot of work, and but God can fix it. And But I want you to understand something. You are guilty of aiding and abetting also. Because you wouldn't give your wife the desire she needed 
to feel loved and wanted. So that's what Paul's talking about here about you know Satan tempting because of your lack of self-control. Okay, now I could preach on this topic for weeks, but for time's sake, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna move on on that one. Okay, everything everything that God has created has a purpose. Okay, everything He's created has a purpose, and the purpose is always for the good of His creation. It is always that way, right? Marital intimacy is no exception. It it is designed for the benefit of society. It's designed for the benefit of the man and the woman. It's, it's a good thing, right? But misusing it or defying his rules in that has serious consequences. And it's a shame when something that's supposed to be a blessing ends up being a curse. You know, I've told people time and time again, you know, before you so quickly throw your relationships away, remember when you first saw her? Remember when you first saw him? Remember that feeling you had? Remember how, how important they were to you and how you made sure they knew they were important to you? Remember how you just felt so blessed to find that person? Listen, I've been married almost 31 years, and I will tell you every day I hit the lotto, right? I'm just saying. But sometimes you have to remind yourself of that and ask yourself, what has happened that's pulled me away from that? And you need to work on that before it ends up destroying you. So, I mean, if you've been blessed with a spouse who loves you and whom you love, cherish them. Cherish them. Because you cannot be the spiritual being that God designed you to be. You cannot be as close to your spouse or to God as He designed you to be if you are denying your husband or wife, if you are, uh, you know, finding ways to drive wedges between you and your wife. It's so important that you make sure that you stay close. And marital intimacy is a big part of that. And I think in a time where... Uh, Sexual immorality reigns supreme, and sex is seen as nothing personal. You ever notice that? It's nothing personal, it's just sex. Tell me you can't see the enemy all over that. That's his way of trying to, to dehumanize something that God gave us to make us closer to him and each other. And that's why Paul was warning him. It's very, very important. Because, listen, if a person can't have a loyal relationship with a spouse, how can they have one with God? That's what it boils down. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and close here. We'll, we'll pick up there next week. I'm asking you to please bow your head. We always like to get an invitation. I know that seems strange when it's like this. But we believe in preaching straight through. We don't dodge anything. But I know the Word of God is powerful, and I always ask, if there's anything you'd like me to pray about, whether you're not sure where you stand with God, or you just need prayer, it doesn't matter to me. I'm going to pray either way. Just make eye contact with me and put your head right back down. That's the secret, and I'm going to pray for you. That's the secret. If you're watching or listening online, God knows your heart. I'll be praying for you. I always pray for believers because I never feel like we're doing what we should be all the time. I think it's a dangerous situation when you become complacent. And I think a lot of us have. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for the love that you've shown us from the beginning. I thank you for your sacrifice. I thank you that you knew we couldn't do this on our own, so you sent your son to do it for us. So that all we'd have to do is believe that what he did was enough to guarantee our eternal life, and he'd give it to us. You didn't ask us to become good enough because we never can do it. You didn't ask us to prove ourselves or make penance. You just said, believe. Because you love us that much. And I thank you for that. And if someone here who doesn't know you, I pray that sinks into their heart and moves them to walk to the cross and believe the sacrifice that Jesus made for them so that they can be a part of your family. If they do, I just pray they allow us to walk with them in that journey. But for those of us who are believers, we have a job to do. And that's draw people to you by living lives that reflect you. And I can't think of a better example than how we love our spouse. It's supposed to imitate the love you have for the church, God, and that is such a powerful love. 
I just pray, God, that husbands and wives realize the great responsibility they have as Christian couples and the great blessing they have of nurturing something so beautiful so that not only can they enjoy each other and have a close relationship, but that they might walk close to you and other people might desire what they have in you. We thank you, God, for all that you do. We ask you to keep us safe as we live, as we leave here and let us live at least the And if you don't return, to take us home before we meet again. Just pray, I just pray, Lord, that we come together one more time and give you the praise, honor, and glory of the Lord. Amen.